just verses 1 through 4 this morning. This is God's word. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. As far in God's word, people say what you don't know won't hurt you. But that's not true, is it? Uh, We teach our our children there are things that if you don't know, you can get hurt. Um, Not knowing whether there's a car coming before crossing the street is a simple and common example. Not knowing if that dog is chained up, you shouldn't go near him and try to pet him. Not knowing that touching that stove might get you burned. There are simple things we teach our young ones that go against that common statement. What you don't know won't hurt you. Did you know that you can get hurt if you don't know enough about Christmas? I know I've couched that statement in a certain way. The truth is that not knowing enough about Jesus presents that spiritual danger. And the story of Jesus begins with his his birth. We You must know the truth about Jesus, and the Christmas story, the facts around it, are an essential part of the identity of Jesus. We have to know it, and we have to know it with certainty. It brings us to my main point this morning. Since God gave us his word, we accept with certainty the truth about the coming of Jesus. First, we'll see that we accept what the Spirit wrote about Jesus, not what others have said about him, verse 1. Verses 2 and 3, we accept how good, orderly, and sufficient God's word is to inform us about that coming of Jesus. And third, we accept with certainty the things that God revealed to us. So first, in verse 1, again we read just these words from verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, many have undertaken to compile a narrative. Some we know, like Matthew, Who else is he referring to? People want to spin a narrative about who Jesus is and what just happened. What are we to learn from Luke presenting it this way, his first words in his gospel account? What knowledge about Jesus was being presented? By whom? What knowledge about Jesus are are we to have? Uh, Luke is writing into a a time when there's many false teachers, and every generation has false teachers, including our, our own. So with so many false teachers around Luke, with so many false teachers around us, What are the things that we can believe and must accept about Jesus? And specifically about Christmas, the the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is his topic in these first two chapters. You know that many people say many things about Christmas, many many things about Jesus, about his birth. Uh, When you gather with extended family, you gather at uh, company parties, and people reveal what what they believe, what they don't believe regarding the Christian message. Most people get it if you ask them, and they're trying to summarize what Christmas is about. Yeah, it's about the birth of a baby, they understand. But does everyone know the full truth about who this baby Jesus was and why he came and the significance and the importance of Jesus' birth for the truth about Christianity? And does everyone know the Christmas story facts? For example, it contains the birth of two baby boys. John the Baptist and Jesus is integral to the story and understanding of Jesus and his birth. 
Why is that second baby in the Christmas story? Now you're well past the knowledge of a lot of our coworkers and neighbors. They, they don't know a lot about the second baby and John the Baptist and haven't read this. And causes a question, though. What are Christians supposed to believe regarding the nature of these two babies? One is just a man like you and I, human, called to be a prophet for sure, but just a human being, a fallen sinner. The other, the very Son of God who also took on human flesh. So two babies in the story, one is human and one is God and man. That's what we're called to believe. Begin to explain that to your unsaved coworker, to your neighbor who is against these sort of things. This is information we need to know for sure for ourselves, for our family members, for anyone with whom we talk. Do your family members know? Do your coworkers accept this truth, the basic facts and the import of the facts of Christmas? Do you? It's an excellent time to begin to go down through again the simple facts of the story and their meaning. Their meaning for our confession of faith. Their meaning for our look at life, what it all means, and beyond this life, what that means. God's word actually helps with all of this. God's word helps anyone who's doubting to accept this truth and be certain of this truth. You might start by asking your unsaved friend what they believe about Jesus. You won't get this answer. You won't say, "Um, I'm not really sure. I'm just kind of exploring. You never get that answer. Everybody has a theory about Jesus. A well-accepted, fully embraced theory about Jesus. And people have a theory about how the world got here in the beginning. People have a theory about how the world will end. These are core things that everybody has a theory about. The question is, what's their view of Jesus? And if you don't mind listening to their view of Jesus, would they not mind listening to your view of Jesus? What is your view of Jesus? You actually believe the entirety of the Christian story that he's the ever-living God with no beginning. And at the same time, he has taken on human flesh and has become man, just like us. You buy that whole thing? Because that's what Christians do. Christians buy the whole thing. We accept the entire thing. And we always have for these 2,000 years. It's basic to our belief system. It's what we recited together in the Nicene Creed. It's in the Apostles' Creed. It's in the Scriptures. It brings us to this gigantic philosophical word. It's called epistemology. It simply means how we know what we know. Let's say you believe the entire Christmas story. He's God and man. How did you come to know that? When we're little, we accept it because mom and dad say so. Like everything else we accept because mom and dad say so. And somewhere in our maturing process, we reach a point where we have to go beyond mom and dad and explore for ourselves whether that stove is hot and whether we can approach that dog and pet him and whether we can cross that street without paying attention. And somewhere we go beyond what mom and dad have said about what they believe about Christmas and the Bible and Christianity, and we explore for ourselves what we believe. And then you really have this epistemological question right up against you. What will be the basis of your information then, if not mom and dad? You could say the church, and that's wonderful. We ought to train and teach. But the belief about your soul and the destiny of your soul has to go beyond human beings like those of us in the church. 
where do you get your information about what you believe about Jesus Christ? It has to come from Scripture, you see, because Scripture is God, His Word. It, he's the originator. How do you know what you know about Jesus and Christmas? Paul summarizes in one sentence, one beautiful sentence. It's a great one for Christmas cards. 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 1 Timothy 1.15. The birth of Jesus Christ into the world means he was outside of the world, God, and he came into the world, man, in two distinct natures and one person. Forever it leads to an understanding of everything about his life. All of his activities occurred while he was one person with two natures, walking on water and doing the miracles and teaching his disciples and his death and his burial and his resurrection. So it leads to a whole host of necessary understandings. It leads us to Good Friday. It leads us to Good Sun uh, Easter Sunday. All of the different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry and redemption we need to understand built on the fact that he's both God and man. We need to know the exact truth about the incarnation, to know the exact truth about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, which is all necessary for our salvation at all. You're a perfect person. You're not naughty at all. As we get examined, will you get coal or will you get goodies based on how good you are, that all nonsense? If you actually buy that picture, how do you do with your own assessment of yourself? You're a perfect person. If you're not a perfect person, then what happens to the wrongs that you do or, or have done? We need a process, a philosophy for understanding how our wrongs get righted. It starts with Christmas. It's, it's vital to have the truth about Christmas if you're going to have your sins cleansed somehow so that one day you stand before the holy God. See, it indicates the importance of Jesus. Now, where do you get from your information? Have you met him? Of course not. We know what year we live in. None of us have ever met Jesus in person, so you're already consigned to accept somebody else's theory, somebody else's report, witness. Whose will you accept? Have you ever met anybody who met him? No, we're far enough removed in history that that's not the case either. Have you ever had a report given to you about somebody who did meet him? Ah, now that you have. It's right in front of you. We have that best-selling Bible around the whole world, the best-selling book there ever was. It's in there. What if we had reports from people who were there, people who met him, people who met his mother, before he was born met his mother, people who are nearby and can confirm that the things that were told about the Christmas story actually happened? What if we had reports of those? I think today we might be nervous to be interviewed by a reporter about anything spiritual, religious, or scriptural. I'm a minister, and I think I'd be nervous to be interviewed by a reporter. Not that I wouldn't know what to say, but I wouldn't know if it get reported the way I said it. Uh, how would they present what was said by a minister, by a Christian? We're not sure they would accurately quote us. Same problem. It's epistemological problem. It's a how-do-we-know-what-we-know kind of problem. How do we know what's true about Christ? At the same time, here comes Luke. He recognized that there's information needed, basic facts, information that some people would do a bad job reporting, but not everybody would do a bad job reporting about Jesus. There were reliable reports and unreliable reports, and Luke was in a position to see all of it. 
And so he, he had access to the kind of things that we need to report on, the exact things that we need a report on. Whether historian gathered those reports, whether reliable, unreliable, written, verbal, he used all of them to corroborate his own account along with the other accounts. He knew that we would need more than just his witness. He knew that we'd need more than just other witnesses. So he took it upon himself, carried along by God the Holy Spirit, to provide what we have here. What an incredible gift. Luke knew that it would be helpful to have the official government records about Jesus referenced and mentioned. That could be independently corroborated if you did historical research. So in Luke chapter 2, Luke provides that. You know, the whole thing you've read, heard a hundred times, census ordered by Caesar Augustus while Quirinius, the famous name that no child could ever pronounce, right? And we all get a chuckle as we see them reading these lines. Quirinius, governor, each went to be registered. You know, the, the whole report. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, reference back to King David, Right, called Bethlehem, registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while there, don't you think it's significant that while there, to sign up for the census, that's when the baby was born? So that even the government officials could corroborate that this child is actually hers because it came out of her? The historical accuracy of this account she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. We, we just kind of let our mind turn off when we read these words, but these words are helpful and necessary for us to base the truth of our beliefs. So Luke wrote chapter 2. But Luke also knew that it would not be sufficient for us to only have the official records he mentions in chapter 2 of Luke. Luke knew that we would need truth that's contained in chapter 1, quite a long chapter. And Luke had the privilege to talk with Mary, it's obvious, as you read this chapter. Who has had the privilege to talk with Mary? Some. Some around the time of Luke. But Luke had that privilege. He interviewed her. And he interviewed her as a friendly, right, the one who would want the truth, one who is a doctor, who would be able to interview her with regard to how this birth took place, how the pregnancy came about. And God in his sovereignty had placed Luke at a time in world history when Luke would have all of the information needed to write these two chapters. In addition, God's Spirit gave Luke the desire to write down a report for us, which he mentions here. And God's Spirit also carried him along in his writing so that the Gospel of Luke has two authors at the same time, both Luke himself and God the Holy Spirit. This is God writing it to us. So Luke also has two audiences. First, a man he mentions here named Theophilus. But Luke's writing was also written to a wider audience. You and me, God had this written for you. Luke had this written down for you and for me. And Theophilus was in the same pickle that you and I are in. He never got to meet Jesus, or Mary, or John, or Zechariah, or Elizabeth. Theophilus is in the same pickle you're in where you're just going to have to believe what somebody else says about Jesus, Mary, John, Zechariah, and Elizabeth. Luke is reporting to Theophilus, and he's reporting to you and me. 
And it's always been the case these last 2,000 years. As soon as that first generation died off, we can't interview them. And so we rely on whatever interviews took place, whatever reports have been, have been printed out. We have to trust the people who tell us what happened. At some point, we have to trust somebody about what happened. The Apostle Paul wrote similarly to Titus in 2 Timothy 3, 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and from how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 15. It's how it works. We trust somebody. We trust the source. And therefore, we can trust the reporting that comes through that source. Do we trust God? Do we trust Luke? Do we trust the reporting that we have here? And uh, as Paul mentioned in his, his statement there to Timothy, you know your father and your mother and your grandmother. You don't need others to tell you who they are. And because you know them, Timothy, you can believe what they told you. But again, we're back to the same problem. Some of us didn't get to meet a certain parent, a certain grandparent, a certain family member, and so we rely on others to tell us stories and facts about who they were, exactly what things happened. Similarly, some people got to meet Jesus. Some people got to meet Mary, but we did not. We need others to tell us stories of exactly what Jesus was like and how he came into this world. Who handed down the stories of Jesus to us? How did we get our Christmas story? Why do we make such a big deal about it? Because men like Luke, who had seen Jesus, gave us this gift of writing it down for us. So that's our first point. We accept what the Spirit wrote about Jesus, not what others have said. Secondly, verses 2 and 3, as he continues, we now accept how good, orderly, and sufficient God's Word is to inform us about the coming of Jesus. Maybe you're curious. You have a lot of questions that are not answered by any of the Christmas passages. That's okay. God has given us what's sufficient, what's good, what's orderly. It all makes sense and lines up. The rest you'll find out in heaven. And some of those things we just have to die to the curiosity moments and accept that this is what's necessary, this is enough. And so verse 2 goes like this, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, who handed down the stories of Jesus. Well, the mother of Jesus would have to tell her perspective. How else will we get it confirmed that we're talking about a virgin birth here, right? So the people around her, closest to her, the ones who it would be normal and natural for her to talk about these things with, she talked about these things with. Those who had themselves seen Jesus and then became preachers of Jesus, you know, the apostles. They had learned from Jesus how this all went. These people began as eyewitnesses of certain events, told others the truth. And later they became authors who wrote it down or Ministers who preach the word of truth. And Luke recognized that he's in one of those positions. He's in a unique position in order to report to others this important truth, and so he comes forward with it to be helpful to us, his brothers and sisters in Christ. It brings us to verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Now, if you've read many books, you'll know that you know, especially scholarly type books, not novels, that people will say, why does another book need to be written on this topic? And they'll use the first pages to explain why another book should have to be written on this topic. What's the unique contribution here? And that's what he's saying in verse 3. Seemed good to me also. You already have other accounts, but you need to hear from me because of the position I'm in. In other words, we ask it a different way. Why in God's sovereignty was it so helpful for Luke to write this for us? 
A, Luke's a historian. B, he's a doctor. C, he's a theologian or believer, someone who understood about God and about the prophecies of Scripture and where he stood in redemptive history. He's the sort of man who went about his work in a thorough way. He went about things in an orderly way. He did it for the good of others, not just to publish a book for money or fame. He had the knowledge, he had the skill, he had the commitment, he had done the research, he had interviewed the people. He was a good scholar, a good writer. It's clear from Luke's account that he talked extensively with Mary, just as it's clear from Matthew's account that Matthew interviewed Joseph. We need that perspective too, don't we? And here Luke tells us in verse 3 that he followed all things closely for some time past. What a careful phrase. What Luke is communicating carefully to Theophilus and carefully to us, and what God the Holy Spirit is communicating carefully to us, is that Luke investigated everything from the beginning as much as you would if you were in his position and asked all the same questions that would ever occur to you. The verb in Greek here literally means Luke was interested as, as following a course of action with the mind. You know how you watch a cop show and the good cop is the one who says, I'm going to follow the facts. And wherever the facts leads, that's the person, right? They follow the facts to lead, lead to the solving of the crime, the person who did it. The, I don't know who did it, but when I follow the facts, it'll get me. That's the kind of course of action of his mind. Is it true, Mary? <laughs> And this was Luke's pursuit, his undertaking. He's all over this story. He was a well-placed instrument in the Lord's hand to write this account so we'd know from a medical perspective, if you get what I'm saying. We would know from a theological perspective, as you understand the import of whether this is true or not. We get it from a historical perspective, because Luke knew where he was, what had happened before. That we have the story straight. What a gift is all of God's word. But when it comes to Christmas, we need these two chapters. Luke 1 and 2. Brings us to our third point, just from verse 4. We accept with certainty the things that God revealed to us. That's what he says in verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Certainty. Certainty. Luke is writing with the concern that the man named Theophilus and other readers after him, like us, would be able to know about Jesus with certainty. This, in Greek, word order, the very last word of verse 4 is the word certainty. You just change it around. Greek is a different language than English. It's how you do it when you want to emphasize a word. It's like it's underlined and highlighted with an asterisk next to it. Certainty. It'd be like saying, in English, you'd say it this way, if there's one thing I want you to know about Jesus, it is that concerning the facts about Jesus, you can be absolutely positive. Put the word positive at the end of the sentence. The best I can do to help you to see the way he wrote this. Positive, certain. The Greek word here is asphaleon. It's from the word from which we get in our English asphalt or blacktop, like a road or a highway. It, it means a state of being secured from falling. Think of standing on the asphalt as opposed to standing on mud. It's firmness for where your feet stand, security for you. And figuratively, which is how he's using the word here, it refers to what qualified instruction affords you. So accurate information affords you certainty. 
we know that we know the truth. We can depend on this information. We have the exact truth about Jesus. So Luke is beginning his book by certifying you have the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth concerning Jesus. I don't know how, how much more strong he could say it to us than how he has said it to us in this very important set of verses in the introduction. When you study my account, you will have the information you need. Together with the other accounts, this takes its place. So... Luke the Apostle is supported in this by writings of the other apostles. Just a quick example, John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John 20, 30 to 31. John shared the purpose for John's whole book that we may believe Jesus is the Christ and therefore have spiritual life. In the same way, Luke, at the very start of his gospel, tells us the purpose for his writing is so that Theophilus might know, anybody else who reads might know, the certainty of the things recorded here. That Theophilus had heard about Jesus, but he may have lacked certainty. You've heard about Jesus. Your neighbors, co-workers, friends have heard about Jesus. They heard about Christmas. How could you miss Christmas in America? But do they have certainty? about the facts and what it means for their own souls. The Apostle Peter also corroborates the truth about Jesus in his writing of 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1.12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter corroborates what Luke wrote and what John wrote and what Matthew wrote and what Jesus taught and Mary reported. What do we mean? What do we see? What is the... Application to us of these introductory verses. Jesus gave us his word and we accept the, tr- the certainty about him that the Spirit wrote, not what other people say, how good, orderly, and sufficient his word is about his coming and certainly that we can accept what God's revealed to us with certainty. So that's my application. Number one, just, just one application. Accept with certainty the truth about our salvation through the coming death, and resurrection of Jesus. What are some other sources of teaching about God to which you or your family are exposed on a regular basis? Maybe be cautious of those. (laughs) Other sources that tell another story, another narrative, maybe be cautious about those. What could be done to better fortify yourself or your children in the truth? Since God gave us his word regarding Christmas, make it a part of your preparations and part of your celebrations of Christmas to ponder again, ponder anew, as one of our carols says, all the Christmas chapters, because the truth in them is vitally important for a Christian in this world. Let's pray. Father, grant us certainty of your truth and true faith in the Lord Jesus, born, died, died, 